There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1125. Let's jump right into the ID10T community corkboard events at ID10T.com. Like Tori, who writes, I'm a theater teacher. Uh, Over the pandemic, we were not able to meet. So with my students, we started creating what was originally going to be a TV show, ultimately ended up becoming a podcast. These kids work very hard, deserve all the love and support for their creativity, determination, and love for theater. This original science fiction thriller was inspired by an original story by Lee E. Scholes uh, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, conceptualized and written by the Hill High Theater Collaborative. Can I Tell You a Story is a podcast about the last group of survivors from an alien invasion. By taking refuge in a gated community, the group uh, processes the events that have led them there. Find us on anchor.fm and search Can I Tell You a Story. Um, Amazing, Tori. So, so well done um, of an idea with your students. Uh, I look forward to listening to it and I encourage people to check it out on anchor.fm and events at id10t.com for anyone else who wants to submit for the corkboard. This episode is Edgar Wright and Sparks. Um, Edgar Wright has a documentary out right now um, from Focus Features uh, called The Sparks Brothers, which uh, he directed. Edgar was a huge fan of Ed, along with a ton of people, of this amazing band called Sparks, which has been around since 1967. They've made 25 albums. Um, They've had this incredible cult following. And the documentary is just superb. It's such a, it's so beautifully done. It's a wonderful story. Not just interesting to follow the 25 album career of this band and they're still making albums still today. They've never stopped. Um, It's such uh, a wonderful uh, education in, you know, just being true to who you are, not compromising, you know, continuing to produce stuff. And what you find with a band like Sparks is that the fans of Sparks are just die hard Sparks fans. And they have influenced when you see how many bands and how many music movements they have helped influence. uh, You may not realize like you'll see them do something, you know, like in the 70s or the 80s or whatever. And then a couple of years later, (laughs) that kind of thing will start to catch on and become like you know, the biggest thing in, in pop music. And they're so nice. They're all so nice and very inspirational. And just, uh, it, this was such a, a wonderful, wonderful chat with all of them. Um, the Sparks Brothers uh, documentary is available now. Uh, I am a huge fan and this was an absolute pleasure and an honor. And also Edgar Wright has a really kick-ass movie coming out in the fall that's a scripted film uh, called Last Night in Soho. I think it comes out in October, but it is later this year. So check that out too. Uh, here is the ID10T episode. 
episode number 1125 with Edgar Wright and Sparks. Initiating ID10T protocol. Recording in progress. Ooh. Oh, just so you know, a robot just told us that the meeting is being okay. recorded. Okay, uh, it's kind of creepy. Yeah, I mean, the the world is basically just a creepy. We're we're in a weird, we're in our own weird Black Mirror episode. I think it really, it really seems that way. <laughs> are you uh, are y'all in Los Angeles? Yeah, yeah. I think Edgar might be in the UK. Yeah, 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 he is. He is. He, uh, oh, Russ, hey, how's hi, it going? Hi, hi, Chris. Hi, how are you? Nice to see you. You too. Uh, I feel like he's should be on soon. I mean, we could just idly chit-chat until he gets here. Uh, for instance, how was your quarantine? <laughs> cool. It's <laughs> happening. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like you probably got a, work, a lot of work done. I- I found out I'm supposed to feel inferior, though, because I'm a Moderna guy, and I, I found out that the Pfizer is the cool one, so I don't know. Oh, it man, you know, it's <laughs> never underestimate the ability for uh, for human beings to sort of still categorize, like even when you're doing the right thing. Oh, yeah. you do that? That's not the right enough thing, but a nice right. try. Right. Good so, so Moderna's were not cool anymore? I didn't well, get no, that they, story. They, they said a lot of it has to do with the, the sound of it, that Pfizer oh. is, is like like people online, you know, oh, I've got Pfizer. And it's like, you know, snappy. And it's like a, a person's name. Yeah. Uh, but Moderna sounds kind of robotic. So, uh, so that's oh. not as cool. See, oh. I think the opposite. I think <laughs> Pfizer sounds... Okay, so so like... If we're looking at them as sort of like um, endeavors, Pfizer sounds very corporate to me. Moderna sounds very artsy to me. No, I I, I completely agree with that. But uh, so we we got to start our own movement somehow. You know, <laughs> yeah, they, Moderna needs our help. I think. Yeah. Oh, hey, Edgar. I'm so sorry about that. I was just oh. on an, another interview, which. Well, we just we just wrapped up. It was great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we we had only good things to say about you. So. Mostly, yeah, okay. mostly. Okay, cool. Well, that saves time. <laughs> hey, nice to see you, Chris. Long time no see. I know. I seriously, it's it's it's. I, I, you know, it, it, there's just going to be this chunk of where we're just kind of edit out a year of our lives, and then we'll all hopefully just be. It'll just be like it never. You know, like we have seen each other the whole time. I know I'm not, you know, I'm not in LA. I'm in London, so it's a, a double whammy where not just the lockdown, but I've been in. I haven't seen Ron Russell for like ages either, not in person. Uh, yeah, we 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 meet on Zoom, but uh, it's not quite the same. We have not we have not like watched the movie together like no, badly. No, no. Are you serious? You haven't been able to see the movie together? No, but, not. No, I mean I've been in. I've been at. Yeah, I've been in London since January 2020, and I guess I finished it like in the the first cut was like in the summer or something like that, or late late summer. So um, I haven't 
I haven't been back to the States since, so I haven't been able to sit in a room with Ronald Russell and watch it. It's crazy. Uh, Edgar, let me just pitch this idea to you because, you know, things are going very well for you. You have this movie coming out last night. And so if you could just buy the Cinerama Dome, we could, because it's available now, you, we could just go watch it there. Is that an unreasonable <laughs> gesture? Come on. Come you on, please. And I think people on, on Twitter underestimate how much money I have. No. <laughs> Edgar, how can you say no to these? Sorry, faces? wait, wait, wait. They overestimate. Sorry, they overestimate. <laughs> Sorry, I got it wrong. It's like when the Cinerama Dome thing happened, so many people said, hey, can you not just buy the Cinerama Dome in the Arclight Hollywood? It's like, yes, I have tens of millions to, of, for LA real estate money to spare. And, and operating capital. Yes. <laughs> Good da- tax deduction, though. So, you know. <laughs> That's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea. I um, I mean, I listen, everyone loves the movie and rightfully so. It's it's so good. This movie is so it's so artistically inspirational. But just I love that it's just, you know, even though the movie has its ups and its downs, it just feels good. Like the movie just feels good. Does it does it is that how you perceive the story yourself, Edgar Wright? Well, I guess part of the inspiration for it was that um, having sort of been at first kind of like, you know, like if not like a super fan when you're five, certainly like very aware of Sparks and what they look like and what they sound like. And then that sort of over the years being sort of an ongoing kind of like riddle turning into like a full on like fan obsession. I think like one of the reasons I wanted to make the documentary is I felt that Ron and Russell in this century since like 2002's little Beethoven had sort of just kind of like were flying in the face of the trajectory of any other band that had been going that long. And I couldn't think of anybody else that was like it. who was bringing out new material so regularly that was like as good as, if not better than the in big, in big inverted commas golden period. I think we don't like, I think it's fair to say, I'm not going to speak on Ron Russell's behalf. They don't like to think of, a golden period because it's sort of all gold at a certain point. <laughs> so, so to me, that was the thing that was amazing is that most like bands that have been going for as long as Ron and Russell have, I feel that what Ron and Russell have been doing is to be lauded, to sort of keep kind of pushing the boat out, like keep doing what they want to do and just saying to the audience, catch up. And I think that's something that most bands don't dare do. They're too nervous to kind of lose an audience. And I don't think Ron and Russell have ever done that or, or not like, you know, de- not deliberately, you know. Well, I wonder also because, you know, if you're so tied to a result of something where, you know, it's like, oh, I guess we live or die by this thing, whether we lose a thing or get a thing then you probably are in a constant state of fear to try new things. But Ron and Russell, you constantly, even, even when stuff succeeds, you go, well, I, we can't do that again. We have to, we have to keep moving forward and exploring. And I, I really want to just kind of talk about the, the basis for never staying in the same place twice. Well, part of it is just, uh, you know, we just have, uh, a sense that we I don't know we don't we don't want to repeat ourselves and that and that you know the 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 core audience for Sparks really expects us to be kind of mutating all the 
uh, mutating is a bad word nowadays, but in, in any case, cha- changing over 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 time. And so we're, we're fortunate in that sense that there will, will always be people following what we're doing uh, that ex- that are disappointed when we repeat ourselves. But, you know, it's just it's just kind of a something that I that's hard to describe that we need to kind of keep doing new things, because when we're working on things, we enjoy working on new stuff so much. But it's really miserable if we say, let's do something like such and such from from the last out. We we always want to re- surprise ourselves. And when when we can surprise ourselves, then we kind of feel that we've got something that maybe will have an impact on on other people. I think what you said too earlier, Chris, about um one about expectations or what that we kind of we kind of think that we're in a different area where we're not, you know, for better or worse, we're, we're not continually being scrutinized in a, you know, in a, like Edgar mentioned, a Rolling Stones sort of way or something so that, so that we kind of feel that, well, what do we have to lose anyway by just trying something and doing what we want to do? Because, um, you know, we have really, you know, we have a big, fan base but it's you know like it's touched upon in the documentary you know like um it's you know it's not uh u2 level or something as far as you know that sort of scope and so we kind of feel like well we can do whatever we want and and you know it's not gonna like ron had mentioned too it's that people are that are into sparks really want to see where we take kind of our private club uh you know each each time we set out to do a a new album and so in that way there's kind of a freedom that i think a lot of bands um with a lot more commercial success don't have maybe or they or they they have that they have that freedom to to do whatever they want to do but they're out of fear of losing their millions and millions and millions of fans they don't want to rock the boat whereas we kind of feel one blessing of being sort of where we are um, is that we can, you know, we can do what we want to do and, and feel like we're not going to, you know, you know, change, you know, ruin, ruin a good thing that we have going. Sometimes we're just not aware of the reality of the situation in a positive kind of way. Like when we first moved to England in the middle seventies, we had had two albums out in the States and Ireland, wanted to sign us with just the two of us and we we went there and you know to their credit they signed us but there were no songs it was all based on this kind of idea i guess and so we went there and and started writing and if you know if we if we would have been aware of the pressure of having to come up with something or else being shipped back to the states with kind of nothing it would have paralyzed us but we we kind of just went our merry ways and just wrote uh, without kind of any uh, semblance of awareness of the reality of the situation. And I think there have been several times through the years where that, that's been the case where we've kind of not kind of let uh, the harsh reality of a situation paralyze us into, into either inaction or doing something conservative. 
that is a really hard choice to make too, because especially sometimes when you feel like your survival might be at stake to make the artistic choice for yourself can be, I mean, retrospectively, when you look at it, you might go, Oh, well, of course, that's what you have to do because that's where, that's where your, your, your true identity comes from. And that's where your most artistic and your best stuff comes from. But in the moment, how are you, how are you able to stay focused in that way and go, okay, this might, this doesn't look great. However, just push it aside, get back to the task at hand. That is the ultimate human struggle. Well, when we're, when we're working on things, the thing we're working on is kind of the whole world at that moment. And so, so the, the other issues kind of become really small. And, and even if that's not the reality of the situation, I mean, if we should be afraid of these monsters kind of, kind of popping in. And so, so it isn't, it really isn't all that difficult for us because when we're working, we're, we're incredibly focused and kind of shut out everything and kind of other people in a, in a, in, a, in most circumstances uh, as, as well. And so, uh, you know, we just, we, everything seems inevitable after, when you, you know, when you look back on it, you know, it's, oh, that, you know, and obviously that was, you know, you did number one in heaven. Obviously that was something that was going to, you know, you know, open up things for, in other ways for other people. But at the time it was like, you know, it was kind of like a pretty lonely path. And, you know, we've, we've been also fortunate to be able to work with people that have given us some kind of courage like Georgia Moroder in the case of number one in heaven, you know, when you work with somebody like that, even though you're sacrificing some of your independence, uh, it it's somebody that really knows what they're doing. And, you know, Tony Visconti and Muff Winwood and Todd Rundgren, the, those situations you get when people are really skilled at what they do, you have courage and, in, and, and they also have faith in your vision or, artistically then then you kind of gain more courage in those moments as well i think all all those producers that ron mentioned part of their what what has made it successful with each of them in their own way was that they they did uh trust what we were doing and none of them at all said okay, I really like you, but you know what you need to do in order to reach a bigger audience is to do such and such. And not one of those producers ever said that. Todd mentions it in the documentary that um, that he really liked the demos that we had sent to him. He was the only person that that liked them enough to sign, to, to stick his name on it and to sign the band. But he said he he loved what they were and he just wanted to improve the fidelity of those recordings. So it wasn't kind of changing it uh, creatively. And it was this, you know, the same goes for, for Muff Winwood and, and Giorgio uh, and uh, you know, Tony Visconti, they, you know, they all um, appreciated what we were doing and kind of went with us in whatever kind of uh, sort of direction we were. And they brought in their own, their own talents to kind of enhance enhance that but they they kind of let us uh follow our creative path and that i think that's the one thing that we did learn from those people is that uh to be now that we're kind of producing ourselves and have been for quite a long time is just 
to be to be able to look at the songs we're writing and judge them a little bit more uh, dispassionately whether something is really good or not. When at the time early on, everything you wrote was was genius, and then but working with those people, they were you know they were cruel in the in the in the good in the good sense of 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 saying you know you have to write four songs to be able to come up with one that's that's a good one and we that it's something that we've carried on to this day i mean it's it ironic i think that one of the one of your big hit songs is the um when do i get to sing my way that's sort of like when do i get to have that sinatra moment but when you look at your career you've been the most my way like you you're more sinatra than sinatra i feel like sinatra would be like hey i want to be like those sparks kids <laughs> i, I want to do what i want to do you know like it's edgar do you agree with that yeah, I think that's, I mean, I, I've, I, I said this to Rhoda Russell, I said that what I like about them is that they keep writing what seems to be their epitaph song. <laughs> like, it seems like every, every like sort of album, since like propaganda, like has a song of it, which could be like the sort of, this is it guys, that's all folks. And I, I like that number one in heaven, when do I get to sing my way? Edith P.F. sang it better than me. There's all these kind of like sort of career summation songs that are just like, I, I like that aspect where it feels like, um, it, but I, I know, you, I mean, I, I think that's, that's fair to say. And I think that's, mo- that's more obvious now that like, um, that, that it's, it's a sort of, um, but I think that's what's nice about Sparks is they're kind of self-reflexive is that like, you know, to subject objectively, it would seem to be that way that you've never kind of like compromised, and and so it, it's funny to sort of hear songs that are about the what you would have to do to be a star. I like that. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move, or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales. Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. But that's also an interesting point that you bring up too, because, you know, it's, I think one of the interesting things, one of the many interesting things about Sparks is that you, it's so hard to sort of pin down, like it, it means so many different things. It means so many different things to me because um, on the one hand you go, okay, well, so, you know, they're making very artistic choices. And so maybe they would reject commercial success, but at the same time, it feels like, no, I think they want commercial. It's almost, it's like this, this constant human struggle of like, 
no, I don't want to have to compromise. I just want everyone to like me for who I am. And that seems to be like such a core molecular message. Like, look, this is who I am and this is where I'm at right now. Just can't you just fucking accept me for who I am? Okay, this didn't work. I'll try. Okay, now this one worked. Okay, this one didn't. Okay, now this one did. I mean, this sort of struggle between art and commerce for you guys, how do you how do you view it? Well, we've always been really torn in a certain way. I mean, do, just that we kind of, we love pop music and just all of the things about it, like people screaming and reacting really well. And then the other side of it is we've always, you know, maybe partly from our upbringing and just kind of having an interest in film and art, we kind of see that side of it as well. And so so that those kind of competing forces, I think, are, you know, it's never been resolved with us. And I and it, it never will be, I, I mean, at, at this point, for sure. Uh, so I we're, we're comfortable with that kind of uh, unsettling feeling that, well, we're we're kind of straddling both things, and it's not it's not resolved. And you know, even even the audience, like, I mean, I, I kind of try not to refer to so much in the past, but in, like in the seventies, there the audience was kind of split down the middle between screaming girls and then these kind of artsy types, and we we thought that was amazing, you know, and and each of them responding to the band and the in a different kind of way. So we we never felt that we needed to resolve resolve that that issue. And you know, we have enough there's enough outlets especially in a visual sense for what we do as far as album artwork and and videos and those sorts of things. So any kind of uh you know, latent artistic urges or we can kind of communicate them in ways even that aren't necessarily musical. Do you have any predictions for how things could have been different if like, you know, the first album was this massive, you know, you know would would huge success right out of the gate? Do you think that would have changed? Or do you feel like, no, we still would have probably just, you know, like made a choice that we wanted to make creatively for the next one and the next one and the next one? I mean, I, th- I don't know if it would have changed anything. I think just within our, our DNA is, you know, uh, just the, uh, the hope that we're doing something that's kind of really, uh, you know, valid, uh, you know, valid creatively, you know, and, and so, and so um, I don't think it would have changed it because it, it hasn't, there's been the periods where we've had really big hit records in various countries and it, and it didn't change things, you know, like, um, you know, you're supposed to kind of stick with a formula when you have success so that you can continue that, that sort of path. But, you know, we kind of sometimes, even when we've had a big hit record, we, we think we can do something the next time out. That's not that same, that same formula or that same thing that made it work that one time that we can find something equally, um, provocative enough to attract an audience and that doesn't have to be rehashing the same territory. So I don't, I don't think it would really matter, you know, what course we would take musically depending on the success of the band. I'm curious for Edgar, how 
I mean, you must have extrapolated an enormous amount of creative lessons from this from this documentary. And in a way, Edgar, you it feels like you followed a lot of this map. Like I've you don't you don't make the same movie twice. And in the same like you know, like when you hear a spark song, you go, oh my God, I know that sparks, but it's different than the last thing. And Edgar, you have the same thing where it's like, I know what an Edgar Wright movie looks like, but no two are the same. So how, how do you, when you look at this, do you go, oh, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to fall into a success trap where I feel trapped by my own success because you're, you're doing really well now, Edgar. So how do you view it? And moving forward, how do you how do you feel like, well, I want to make sure I want to protect my creative vision without having to compromise too much? I think it's really about like, I mean, the thing that is inspiring about Ron Russell's story and doing this documentary and like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, like sort of, I guess that nearly, I guess I like 25 years into making movies. I made one when I was very young. So I was sort of like it's coming up for its 30th in, in a few years. But I say, I guess the thing is, is you like, and it's it's maybe easier to say this than do this, but it's sort of about having, being, um, doing what you do and being comfortable about it being a success or not, I guess. And sometimes there's like sort of outside forces that I think Ron and Russell have found a way to keep working. You know, with films, there's a point where like, maybe if you have like, two stinkers in a row they might take the car keys away as some people say <laughs> <laughs> all right you're not and gonna I, get these back until i feel like you've matured <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i feel like i've i've like i've like sort of had films that haven't done as well as others but like it's always been on my terms and so i'm sort of i'm proud of them however they did and so i haven't i haven't yet fingers crossed haven't done something that I'm really like unhappy with. And I think the worst thing would be to do something that I'm not that happy with. And I compromise to get there. That would be the sort of, the, yeah. that'd be the worst. Because then you'd so, kick yourself. You go, I didn't even want to, I knew this was wrong and it didn't work. And that, yeah, uh, yeah. that's, and I think sort of, that's something that like, I think the kind of key, I think any like artist, not just mu- musicians, but any artist watching the Sparks Brothers would take away the same lesson is that like, you know, make sure that like success or failure is on your own terms. As, lo- as long as you can own it and you're proud of what you've done, that's the most important thing. But also I think building off on that and even taking a step back further from that, it's, it is kind of fucked up that when we say the word success, there's this implied commerce in it. You know what I mean? Like if you, I mean, to see that for, you know, um, over five decades, that Sparks has been has has stayed true to itself, done what it wants to do, not really had to do anything else other than just keep making music, and they figured it out along the way. It's like fuck, that is. I don't know how much more. I don't know how. I don't know how like a billion dollars would have made that better. You know what I mean? Like it. It feels like that is success. You've done what you wanted to do, and you know again, you. I. I would say that you're probably the most successful in that sense because you've had this cohesive thing for so long and don't you want it to do? Yeah. I think, I think we even said almost, uh, we, you, you paraphrased even what was, uh, I think I mentioned in the documentary that that kind of exact same sentiment that um, how you judge what is success uh, is the whole, is the whole key. And so if, if success is, is only uh, 
how many records you've sold, then then that's one thing. But if success is being, uh, you know, just proud that you're still doing what you're doing and doing it the way you want to do it and still having this core of people that are that are, uh, you know, following what you're doing and appreciating it, then that, you know, that's that's success in our minds. And, you know, every, everybody wants to have two trillion dollars so that they can, uh, you know, uh, be comfortable, more comfortable in doing it. But then at the, the same time, like we touched on earlier, maybe if you had if you had that, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't be as scrappy to to try to come up with something, you know, uh, something that's going to really be provocative, you know, so it, it, you know, it works both ways, but uh, it, it is the thing of how you define what success is, I think. And also how influential, I mean, th- there's that, that moment where you're performing in the nineties and you catch a little shit because there you almost, if I'm understanding correctly, it's like you start being accused of being derivative and it's like, no, we, you're talking about bands that were derivative from us. Like we, you know, like this was this it's sort of like, you know, like if mystery science theater, when mystery science theater came back and people are like, Oh, that's just this other thing. It's like, no, that came from mystery science theater. Like that was the originator, you know? And I think Beck has this really interesting point about how it's like the bees. They're this really important part of the ecosystem that we can't live without that provide for this, for the wider, uh, you know, world, at large, do you do you feel the impact of that, Ron? Yeah, I mean, I, the one one thing that's you know, it's a small thing about the documentary that I love is just that we don't have to be making those arguments that, <laughs> that they're, they're, they have very reliable sources that uh, and and well liked and and uh, well known sources that will speak for us because whenever we would say anything. We kind of learned early on to not, you know, it it just comes off across as defensive. And so, you know, we kind of, you know, would nod our heads, but didn't make kind of a, a big racket. So, you know, it, it it's not the, the main point of the documentary at all, but we we felt, you know, really uh moved that that other people would kind of state what they felt was our influence on other artists or, or on themselves. Yeah, it's, no, not Ron, it's not Ron and Russell's job to say that Sparks' first album came out two years before Queen's first album. That's my <laughs> job. And I, I say that as a Queen fan. <laughs> Just make the chronology very clear. Sparks first, Pet Shop Boys second. <laughs> well, not, well, not only that, but then you see, you know, like you see Sparks performing in the 70s. And I know in the 70s, the idea of new wave was a little amorphous and it sort of included punk and all these other different, like it was just sort of a catch-all for anything that wasn't like super pop. But, you know, it's like like watching you guys perform in the 70s and then watching what came out on MTV in the early 80s. It's like, uh, that's, wow, that's that's real close. I mean, you can see you can see it as a direct progenitor of like what ultimately became this kind of like music invasion, which is probably why people assumed you were British a lot of it, you know, because that genre of music was so associated with this British invasion that MTV brought in, which happened because I heard that a lot of American labels didn't want to put their artists on MTV, but all the British artists were like, fuck, we'll do it. And so then we get this influx of all this amazing new wave music. Do you, 
did you feel a part of that or sort of I, separate from that? Well, I mean, I think we always, yeah, I mean, we always liked, you know, visual, the visual side of things. That was something we was always attracted us to British bands initially, as opposed to our perception of LA at the time with the, the kind of Laurel Canyon school of just, uh, you know, snooze, snooze, uh, music, you know, and, and so, um, so all of that stuff, like videos, we really, you know, we really loved all that and thought if it's another way to, to get your music seen or heard, then it was great. Even to it. I think we mentioned it even in the, uh, the documentary, but to Island Island records credit, we did that video in, in 74 when there wasn't an MTV and we didn't even know we were kind of naive and green then and going, Oh, these, these guys are telling us, can you make a little like a use the song and they'll make a little movie uh, around that song, uh, you know? And so we kind of thought, well, why do you, you know, what do you need that for? Um, But they were kind of right that um, in, in it, you know, was it, preceded MTV or any outlet really for showing music videos. They probably got it placed on some, you know, early morning uh, chat show in the UK at the time, but there wasn't an outlet for it, but they had the foresighted Island to say, um, you know, if you wed your song with visual images in a, with film, uh, you know, there, we could maybe use that in some way. So they were really forward thinking. We never really felt at the time, we never felt a part of any of those kind of movements. I mean, if they stick a description in front of, I mean, I don't even know who they is, but, you know, some journalists or, or, you know, people at record labels, uh, you know, the glam rock band Sparks or, or synth pop band Sparks or new wave band Sparks. And we, <laughs> we never really, even if there were kind of characteristics uh, to our music at the at those times, we never felt a part of any of those movements, and never felt kind of a kinship with other people doing music that was similar to to that at, at the time. We've always kind of felt that a, apart from all of that. I was going to say as well, like even what you said, Chris, about the new wave thing and MTV, and like you know something like Beat the Clock is like two years before that. And then even before that, the, the, the sort of the kind of the really um, sort of crucial top of the pops performance, which a lot of people in the UK sort of say is like second only to like David Bowie doing Starman on top of the pops is like a sort of indelible uh, piece of music television is um, the fact that it's 1974 when Ron and Russell do this town ain't big enough for the both of us on top of the pops. And in context, you have to think about all of the the other bands that are on around them are all like smiley and happy, like ABBA or, you know, kind of other acts <laughs> around. And so just the image of like, of like Russell and Ron staring down the camera into your living rooms and the sort of shock value of it at the time, as you see in the documentary, all the people who were the sort of the creators of punk rock in the UK are all watching and taking notes and sort of like, and then taking that a little further two years later. And like a lot of them are in the documentary, like members of the Sex Pistols and, you know, Joy Division. And so those that line between the two, I think, is just fascinating. 
And I think there's an element, I remember, you know, like I talked to you, Ron Russell, about it, that you were sort of unaware necessarily that you did have that following amongst the young bands. Because I guess in a lot of ways, it's sometimes being ahead of the curve for so long is, becomes a lonely existence. <laughs> you're, like, no, we, you're, always, you're always there like one or two years ahead of everybody else. <laughs> no, we, 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 we didn't. And we were happy that we're, well, beyond happy that you made the documentary so we could, we could learn, uh, you know, hear all these really great creative types speaking about Sparks. We never, we never knew. I mean, you know, that we love the Sex Pistols. We think their album is, you know, absolutely amazing. And so we, we, we would have had no clue that there was any connection with, with them and Sparks. And then we, we learned finally from Steve Jones that we had the ultimate um, honor in that he came to one of our shows in the UK uh, in the seventies and, and managed to weasel his way um, backstage and stole some of our gear. So that was the <laughs> ultimate, ultimate compliment, you know, coming from a sex pistol that he had a, a piece of sparks gear now that he actually stole. Edgar, Edgar, Edgar just quick pitch. I'm sorry to interrupt quick pitch uh, viral video opportunity directed by Edgar Wright sparks breaks into Steve Jones house to reclaim gear. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's fair. I feel like he would totally condone it by the way. I think you need danger money to break into Steve Jones's house. <laughs> <laughs> but I, think, I don't want to do it. I love I, Jonesy, but I don't want to break into his house. <laughs> I feel like, you know, when you're looking at top of the, that top of the pops performance, it's such a great testament to be the most you you are and you have less competition. You stand out from the pack because like you said, someone at the time, conventional thinking would have been like, well, you can't go on and do that because that's not what people know. And, but then you do it. And then all of a sudden it resonates because it's so unique and so authentic to who you are. And so uh, honest that everyone else, like, you know, like take all the creative types to really take notice. But even that idea that you can go on one show and all of a sudden everything changes and the next day the club is full of people and everyone knows who you are. I mean, those things don't work that way. I mean, like someone might have a viral video, but that's, you can never figure when that's going to happen. So what are some of the other ways that you've seen the business evolve in the last five decades and your approach to it? Well, I think one, you know, one thing is not necessarily the content, just just the way that music arrives to people with with streaming. And there's just an assumption. I, I don't mean to sound bitter about this. It's just kind of stating the obvious, but that that people assume that music is free now. And so so that that that's something that's that's changed because uh People get resentful when they have to kind of pay for anything, and they assume that uh, that the music is there for them. And how you know how dare anybody charge uh, for this? And so, so the idea of, of live shows has kind of become even more important now than than it's ever been in the past. You know, a, a kind of live concerts in a way. It's it's almost. There's just, it's almost like an anachronism in a certain sense because it's not, you know, it's not a modern way of, it's something that's, you know, thousands of years old, you know, to, to be performing in front of people. But that's the way that, that, uh, that 
a, a person really connects with people and the, the idea of just receiving your music uh, for free, that's just an assumption, you know, people, people all the time mention, you know, I, I really, I went back and, and uh, researched your music and everything. And, and, you know, we, we realize when they do that, that, that all it is, is just going to Spotify and just <laughs> and finding all the songs. But then the other, the other side of it is that that is an amazing thing that, that before to be able to find out the entire musical history of a band would have taken, you know, you'd have to go to 25 music shops and, and would it cost so much money. And now, now you can do that. So, you know, I, I, I see both, both sides of it, but it is, it is a, a, a change in things. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cashback events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Well, also, you had to wait for someone to decide to either play a record or whether or not they were going to allow you to make a record and now, you know, it, to have the freedom to just be, be in your own home, you know, ostensibly make something in in a day and then the next day just put it up and it's just out there in the world. I mean, is there, do you see pros and cons to both systems or do you have a strong preference for one over the other? Well, from just the logistical side of it, have, be, having access to uh, being able to record in your own home and not be... Um, dependent on a record company's budget that's there's absolutely no downside to that and just to be able to work without anybody else having to say okay here's the money so that you can work so there's no there's no downside i mean the the only thing with just then you know uh it may you know it it also then means that everybody is uh an artist then too. So it, it comes, so there's the, uh, you know, uh, is there's no quality control. It's just, okay, everybody now you can do it. Uh, so does that mean everybody should do it? That's the other side of it. But <laughs> when, when you're doing top of the pops, I'm so curious to find, to know like what, what was it like, like a minute before you're about to go on, like, what's the set like, what is it? You know, because we all have a perception of what it looks like from our viewing side, watching this archival footage. But from your side, what did it feel like? You're about to go on the biggest, one of the biggest shows in British television. And then there's like a three, two, one. I mean, did it just feel like another show or did you feel the stakes of it? Or was it not as big of a set as you thought it would be? What, what were kind of the logistical elements of it? 
Well, it was also new to us, but we definitely knew what the the stakes were. I mean, it didn't it didn't change what we were doing, but but we definitely knew that it would have an Im- impact, you know. And and you know, we were really fortunate because uh, television is kind of how we were first recognized in the UK, rather than live shows. Really, I mean, so and just the idea of close ups and all. It it had so much of a of an impact where some of those things might not have done done that if in a in a live setting. But you know, it was all just you know like this candy store. You know, ooh cameras, ooh uh, dancing girls. You know, it's like it was like it was really just amazing. And you know, we 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 didn't. It was there wasn't any nervousness. It was just God. This is just cool. This, you know, because we were, we grew up, you know, just, uh, just idolizing the whole British scene and to actually be, even if it was only, if it would have only been that one time to actually be a part of that British scene, it was like a dream come true for us. Who was the, this might be a weird question. So if it is, I apologize, but the, when you, when you're looking side-eyed at the camera, that sort of iconic Ron facial presence. It's the one that McCartney does in the coming up video. Who is that guy? Is that a, is, is there, is there like when you're performing, do you have sort of an idea of who that person is? Is he separate from Ron Mayle or is he, is he you or is it someone different? Like who is that guy? Well, I mean, that's a really good question. I can't, you know, it's, it's really hard to, to answer it i mean it isn't it isn't a put on when i'm doing that i mean it 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 is i it feels really natural for me but but i don't also probably don't go walking around the street kind of uh staring out the side <laughs> at, at 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 policemen or something that way you know so so i i, I don't really know how to answer that question because what i'm doing feels perfectly natural and not like a show business version of me. But, uh, but I realize that, you know, if I'm going to a supermarket that, that maybe not, that aspect of me isn't there. So I, I, it's, it's a really good question. and I don't, I don't have a good answer. I mean, I, I, it is, it is me. And, and then it's also maybe just in the, exaggerated version of me but i don't i don't kind of analyze it too much because i don't want to um become you know to have to kind of you don't want to uh, become aware of it step step back and see see myself you know i mean that that coming up video i had forgotten until i saw it again like oh that's right and you know mccartney's it's a pretty it's a pretty funny video for someone to do especially like in 1980 because he's playing like I think he's playing Mick Fleetwood. I think he's playing a Fab Four version of himself. Yeah. He's you. He's uh, Buddy Holly. He's like, he's a bunch of different people. And it's clear that they're all influential to him in some way. That it's like a, that it's a, he's not making fun of it. Feels to me like a real tribute to like, these are all of the, you know, if I could take pieces of all of these people that inspire me, like this is what's in my head. Did it sort of feel that way to you, Edgar? Yeah, I um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's what's that's what's beautiful about it is that, like, um, you know, what's interesting is that most of the other people in the um, in his band are like pre-Beatles. It's certainly Buddy Holly is, and then I think is it like it's either Mick Fleetwood or Ginger Baker on drums. I'm not sure which, but like, I like the fact that but that Sparks is the latest like you know band that he refers to. So in that within that band, I mean, it's like the ultimate compliment, and I I know like. And that's what's amazing to me in the documentary is by really like documenting the fact that Ron and Russell, like going to see the Beatles twice live was like a sort of life changing. Oh my event. God, I need to know about that, too, because I haven't really gotten to talk to a lot of people who've ever seen the Beatles live and you saw them <laughs> twice. Russell, what Ron and Russell, what what was the experience like? Was it as iconic as we would assume it would be? Or was it like, no, they were great. You know, like, did it? Did it feel different or was it just like, oh, yeah, we're going to see a band. They happen to be a good band. It was fun. Oh, no, we were I mean, we were excited, you know, and, you know, going to the well twice uh, the Hollywood Bowl and then seeing them in Las Vegas at the convention center in Las Vegas. And so, you know, it was like, you know, amazing. And like we mentioned in the documentary, we had a cool mom that would uh, that drove us across the desert in this uh, funny little Italian Fiat Multipla car that was you know was a 50 50 uh chance whether it was even going to make it across the desert you know and uh to get there but we you know we were such fans you know of the beatles and and to you know to see them twice and then you know and then to come full circle and to see you know ron being portrayed in, in that coming up video by uh by paul mccartney's pretty you know it's pretty astounding those concerts lasted 25 minutes though and uh you, it, you heard nothing you know it was all just this solid scream but it was it was like it was just it was cool you know it it it, it definitely felt different than than anything you'd ever seen seen before ron has the original uh program uh oh, wow. book that they sold at the at the concerts too it's pretty elaborate really nice and because I guess I was the younger brother. I didn't get one, get to have one. <laughs> so, damn, I can't retire on that, selling that. I don't share well. <laughs> I mean, uh, when you're watching a band like the Beatles, are you are you sort of like, do you look at them as any sort of a model or a cautionary tale or a, does that figure in at all? Or is it just sort of like you can just appreciate them as fans without having to overanalyze it? Oh, no. I mean, that, you know, we we had no idea at the time that we wanted to be especially musicians. But but if we were to be musicians, that's what we wanted to be. You know, not not like playing folk songs in a in a in a coffee house. And so so that aspect of of pop music, that that was the idea the ideal, you know, I mean, putting aside any of the, the music, I mean, we love, we love the music, but just that kind of uh, presentation and that kind of setting and, you know, ideally that kind of reaction, you know, it, it had, it had an incredibly strong uh, and made an incredibly strong impression on us. Uh, is there any type of, of the many different types of shows you guys have done, is there a particular one that you prefer? Do you like larger shows, more intimate shows? I know you said that originally it was sort of a mix of, 
you know, like artsy people kind of nodding their heads and then screaming fans. What what's more appealing? Like when people come to see your show, what do you enjoy for them to take away from it? You know, one one thing they always they always ask before we do a tour too is that you know, um, do, well, do you want to be doing you know seated theater type shows or ones that are more the sweaty rock and roll everybody jams up to the front type shows and so we've done kind of both you know the playing you know like royal festival hall and in in the uk is it really it's a different experience than like like the forum that that's uh that edgar shot in london where everybody just kind of jams up close to the stage and is uh you know really it's kind of more claustrophobic and the other is more like you're doing a you know a uh a theater performance where people are seated. And, and, and so you kind of, you always figure, well, if you're not getting that, uh, the visceral response, you know, from people up close and like jumping up and down, is that less, less good, but we, we kind of now almost are liking the sort of theater type shows more where, where people are, you know, you, you, it's an exchange for getting that, the instant, you know, like, you know, this euphoric kind of crowds sweat on you, but in exchange for people, like kind of really looking at you in a kind of like uh, in a certain way, almost appreciating it in a, in a different kind of way. And so, uh, so we, you know, we really, I don't know, we, 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 we like both and there's festival shows too, where they're, they're where it's the other thing where it's more of a rock experience. So I don't, I don't know we both settings have their, uh, their appeal to us. So, you know, we like, I don't know, we like both things. I think one of the things that I enjoy the most is every song sounds like, Oh, I think this is how this is just whatever they were feeling when they wrote this song. Like it really just feels like such a, because a lot of times people go, Oh, you know, and you guys are really funny. I mean, like there's definitely a, a bit of a cheek element to some of it, but also not like a tremendously sincere. And I feel like sometimes I've noticed like sometimes when you guys are screwing around, people go, oh, are they being serious? But then other times when you're being earnest, they might go, oh, they're just kind of screwing around. Do you find uh, when you're writing that it is just the most kind of honest, honest exploration of like dick around to me is I really feel like they really just felt like the day that they were writing that song. Like I don't have anything to do but dick around right now. And so you wrote about it. Is that kind of how it works? Well, they they aren't usually the songs aren't based on, at least as far as I know, any kind of specific uh, thing that happened in a in the real world. If that if use that like term. an emotion in, the, in an emotional sense. But yeah, 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 yeah. But I I think I think that both of us are just so kind of uh, hyped up all the time, you know, just in a general kind of way that 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 we kind of pour that into the the song and that that aspect you know comes through that we we the just kind of the pure energy of of doing the songs as opposed to kind of anything really specific uh lyrically i think that that what i kind of like about the lyrics ron's lyrics you know are the thing of taking just really mundane sort of situations or things like just oh dicking around and, and you know and then amplifying it into something where it becomes like 
an anthem almost for something that doesn't warrant being an anthem. And I, I think that that's, that it's really good where you taking a small incident and, uh, you know, the, uh, your call's very important to us, please hold. And, and so taking that kind of scenario of, uh, being put on hold, but making it into like an opera. <laughs> I I like as well, like the, I mean, there's, I mean, recently as well, I feel you really like, you know, kind of absolutely sort of crystallize it into an art form. One of my favorite recent ones is of Hippopotamus's, the song called The Missionary Position, which I heard you describe, Ron, as a song extolling the virtues of something that nobody is against. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Write an anthem about something that nobody is against. <laughs> what I mean, for a rock band to write a song called self-effacing full stop like no no other band has written a song called self-effacing i love it you know when you when you sort of when you look back and and obviously you guys are still working a ton and i think I'm, there's a new album coming out this year correct well, um, we're working on a, a new album. Yeah, it's, it won't be out this year, but we're working on it right now. Another one. Yeah, you're also doing the movie as well, right? You're, there's, there's, you're doing a musical as well. Yeah, it's a, it's all finished. It's a, it's a movie project that we initiated about eight years ago called Annette. Um, it's uh, wrote the story, and, and it was going to be Sparks' next album uh, eight years ago. <laughs> and uh, to make a long story short, it's now Adam Driver's uh, next movie that's coming out. It's going to open up the Cannes Film Festival uh, in July. And so, um, yeah, it's something that you know that we talk about a lot in the documentary is just these various film projects that had we been a part of throughout our career and none of them kind of seeing the light of day. And that finally now at this point uh, in our career, we have <laughs> this kind of uh, really high profile film that, that we, that we initiated and it's being it's directed by a French director, Leos Carax. And does that feel surreal? Or are you able to take it with the same sort of like, Ah, you know, success comes and goes. It is what it is. Or, I mean, again, because of so many stops and starts, particularly with film, because I know I, at least according to the documentary, you had your hearts broken more than once when it came to, you know, getting into an area, which I know you were very inspired by French new wave cinema and making film and musicals. And so does it feel surreal? Are you able to kind of go, oh, this is, yeah, this feels nice. You know, I think I'm okay. I'm comfortable with this happening now and not then you know, we're kind of ecstatic about it because it's, um, and it's also, it's something that, you know, we'd worked on for eight years um, and to finally have a film that, you know, to, you know, to, to come out at this point in our career, it's, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of like astounded in a certain way because it, you know, it, it takes a lot of stamina as we've seen with the documentary, you know, for, for Edgar to take three years of his life, uh, to focus on this. He obviously has other projects too that he's working on, but to focus for three years and to have a, a group of people focus for that long on, on one, on one project, it's pretty astounding to find people that are, that can, uh, that, that have that kind of stamina. And then it, it happened, you know, with this movie musical Annette that we've done where it has been eight years of work on, on that project to get it, 
to see the light of day. And so for it to be even given the chance to be the opening film of the Cannes Film Festival, if nothing happens with the, the movie, we're we're happy that 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 that's that even that's enough for us. That's it's pretty amazing. So two quick questions. Um, first one is to Ron. Uh, what are you, when you look back at everything, what are you most proud of? What are you most proud of that Sparks has done? Well, I think just the idea that we've been able to continue uh, without kind of feeling like we're slumming to do pop music at, at, our, at this stage. I, I'm, I'm proud that we're able to kind of go into the studio even now and do pop music without it seeming like somebody that's detached from from the passion of doing that kind of music. I mean, other people might feel that we have no right to be doing that at this stage, but that this is what we do and this is the kind of music that we love. So to be able to kind of be able to make that kind of music and kind of explore how far you can take pop music for that long a, a time is something that, that you know, I'm just, I'm incredibly proud, you know, even aside from however anybody judges the, the quality of, of, of what's being done, just the idea that, that from our own uh, standpoint, we're able to honestly do, do pop music at this stage. And most people have, aren't able to do that, that they feel that they have to be more reflective and kind of more, uh, uh, true to their age in a certain sense. Okay, we're, last, we're never true to our age. Last question, and I'll start with Edgar. It'll be really quick. Edward's got uh, Edgar. Edgar's got to jump. By the way, last night in Soho, I just want to tell people I'm very excited about Edgar. This is going to be. I'm very excited about that movie. Um, but- Listen, we 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 this is where we really come together as a as a unit is that we both have two movies coming out this year. <laughs> <laughs> so, last question to start- it was all planned. <laughs> Last question to start with Edgar and Edgar, if you have to jump, cause I think you have another thing, then go ahead and jump and I'll email you later. But um, I just want to get one last little chunk of wisdom from everyone, starting with Edgar for people who are in the artistic struggle. They don't, they're trying to rectify art commerce. They don't know if they should keep going, give up what to do, how to find themselves, how to be true to themselves. So just any piece of advice for people to keep going and ultimately stay true to who they are. Edgar, we'll start with you and then we'll go down the line. Well, I, I think it's a tricky one sometimes because like sometimes I hear when people sort of say, oh, just be true to yourself and follow your passion. You know, you do get people who come back and saying, yeah, that's easy if you got money, but what if you haven't got money? And I think the thing is, is that like in film at least, there's always a way to do something. Like I didn't come from a rich background and I didn't have like any connections in the industry or anything. And so... You know, my first film cost absolutely nothing. And is it the best film of all time? No, but it doesn't have to be. Nobody has to come out with Citizen Kane or Sex, Lies and Videotape or Reservoir Dog straight out of the gate. It's, it's okay to sort of just... But the, the key thing is like trying. I think a lot of people don't get even that far because they get scared about putting themselves out there and failing. And you've just got to kind of go for it on whatever level you can. So that's the advice really is that is, is to sort of like, you know, not, not be scared of like sort of growing up in public. Well, I, yeah, I, no, just, uh, I can, I mean, what Edgar said is, you know, I, I, it applies to music as, as well. So, you know, you just have to, um, 
jump in at least uh, the only advantage of music maybe over films is you you know you don't need that many tools to at least be doing something you can sing for free uh you know there's the uh you don't have to buy a voice uh <laughs> so so uh it can be done more easily maybe than you know making films is involves a little bit uh more effort or money or something but but you know i think it, it with everything i think it's just the desire to do it and if the desire is 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 there to and you're really passionate about it then you should just pursue it and ron what about you how do you stay true to your vision and what if you don't even have one what if people are like great i don't <laughs> even know what that is i don't know who i am i don't know what the fuck to write about like when you get to those moments it doesn't feel like you ever get roadblocked but obviously everyone has yeah. some type of you know, obstacle sometimes to push through. So what advice do you have for those people to stay true to their vision and even to figure out what it is? Well, I'm not even sure what a person's vision, you know, entails. I mean, when we started, our vision was to be a copy of the who or the king. So, so it's just, <laughs> I think you just have to be fortunate, find, find some model that, that uh, really excites you. And then Hopefully you'll fail miserably at at copying that exactly, and maybe maybe find a direction. Because I think if you if you try to analyze what is what is my vision, I I don't even know how you I don't even know how you do do that. I think it would paralyze you. So I think it's better just to try to find a a general model and then just have it have it be kind of warped by whatever your basic personality is. Yeah. I guess the nature of that question is probably too overanalytical. So in just in terms of like, well, that's not <laughs> just follow what excites you Write about what you feel, you know, like in, in those moments when you sat down and when you sit down to work every day, and I very much understand and appreciate the ritualistic nature of like same time every day, go here, do this, do that. Is it, um, but if you don't really have anything to say, what do you do in those days? Well, we, I think that that's the one thing that people assume that you're inspired every single day and you're not, you know. So in our case, rather than kind of waiting for those days of inspiration, we, we kind of just push it even, even in the writing process. Like like if if I wait for that bolt of lightning to strike, it it you know, it, it can be kind of a long time between those. And so, so it's kind of forcing yourself, even at the moments where you don't feel very excited about d even doing it, just to, just to do something, maybe, maybe on that day, something will, will happen. And then, and then you'll, you'll kind of arrive at a moment of excitement about something, even though you didn't kind of start the day that way. I don't think you can wait for for inspiration. I think you have to just even just there are times where it's just plotting. But in the grand scheme of things, those moments might be the times where where what you come up with is is kind of the, the most amazing. Well, I cannot thank you enough for the chat. It was just such a my wife and I absolutely love the movie and I and everyone who's seen it seems to love it too. And even though I know this is all just part of the journey, just thank you. Thank you for doing what you have done for so long. 
and showing people artistically that it's okay to be who you are without compromising and just not to get sucked in by the other stuff that you can't control. You can control that you show up every day. You can control that you are working and writing and trying to forge a path. And that's literally all we can control pretty much. And that is just such a wonderful testament to not just not worrying well, too much about the result. Thank you. You know, we're so appreciative of, of how uh, Edgar would presented everything. Just, you know, just that it, we thought that there wasn't necessarily a story there, you know, about like other rock documentaries, you know, there's like, you know, dramatic issues of, of drugs and downward slides and all these sorts of things. But Edgar was able to do an, like the, an unbelievable job of, of presenting it in a way that, that, that I, I hate to use the term is interesting, but just that, that, that you kind of want to sit there for two hours and 20 minutes. And, you know, we're, we're deeply appreciative to, to the job that he did. Yeah. It doesn't feel like two hours and 20 minutes, honestly, it just, it really, it just moves, you know, it's such a, it's just such a great story. And, and I really hope, you know, hopefully y'all, you know, play again in LA sometime when that's a thing that is allowed to happen again. It's starting to open up a bit now. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we are actually, so we will, it's going to be announced, uh, shortly but the the uh beginning of of next year we we will be in los angeles and and lots of cities in america so thank you so much it's good to see you both and yeah, uh, yeah we will see you around soon okay. thank you thanks Chris. Good talking. Bye. Bye. bye bye thank you recording stopped id 10 t scanning complete enjoy your burrito once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.